Uh, good morning, friends in Christ. Uh, let me add my welcome to uh, those from David Dunderdale earlier in our service this morning. It's uh, such a joy to think of alumni and missionaries and people at some distance who have been able to join us because of this pandemic. It's one of the one of the gifts that has come out of this, a reconnection, and we always are glad to hear from you if you are finding it uh, helpful to connect with us in this way by, by means of uh, video or uh, online, please let us hear from you. This morning, we continue with what we began a couple of weeks ago in our journey through the Gospel of Mark. It's really apropos that we look at Mark, especially in this Lenten season as we are making our way to Easter and beyond because Mark is a gospel that is focused on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is particularly interested that those who follow him would follow in the same way as our Savior walked. And we'll see some of that again this morning. But listen now to the word of God as it comes to us from the first chapter of the gospel of Mark, beginning with the 21st verse. They, meaning Jesus and the disciples, went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, and come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. The news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, Lord, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out, the man did, and began to talk freely, spreading the news And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. I bet you did the same thing we did last week in our household. When the thermometer hit 70, we opened our windows to the warmer air after the long, wet COVID winter that we have had. The bluebirds in our front yard are sniffing out their VRBO accommodations for the spring, and the crocuses have dared to lift their heads above their winter warmth provided by the mulch. Of course, the camellias, they are the courageous sentinels of spring, aren't they? Already challenging the lingering, increasingly hollow threats of winter. I walk out my front door and I see their white blossoms and their red blossoms and their pink blossoms. My heart is lifted. Change is in the air. And with it, a hopefulness that this wicked coronavirus is actually slinking off. We get the same sense here in these opening paragraphs of Mark's account of Jesus' life. A window has opened in the world. Fresh air is streaming in and with it, a new hopefulness. Mark wastes very little time in getting to his story. There are no genealogies here or family histories. There is an immediacy, an urgency to Mark's account, signaled by John the Baptist's wild appearance right out of the gate, declaring that a new day is coming, a new window has opened, and we had best get our affairs in order. And then that new day arrives, not on the calendar, but in the person of Jesus Christ. With his coming, that window has opened wide. Time has opened, been opened up to eternity through his coming. And things start happening that the world had yet to see. From the first lines of the gospel, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. From those opening words, we are being swept up into the turning point of history, nothing less. And not surprisingly, people are left scratching their heads. First came Jesus' baptism, which surprised even John the Baptist. Here is the Son of God taking upon himself the sign of our fallen humanity. He is going down into the waters of baptism, identifying with fallen humanity, saying, even though I have no need of forgiveness myself as the perfect human, the Son of God, nevertheless, I am identifying with you. I am coming to take your place. So much is signaled but unspoken in the baptism of Jesus. He's identifying with us in our own sinfulness and in our own rebellion. And then if you'll remember, there's a voice from heaven that gives the first hint that this is no ordinary Jew from Nazareth. The voice said, you are my son whom I love. And then Jesus speaks. And the first words out of his mouth, turn around, he says. You are going in the wrong direction. The reign of God is breaking in. Line up your life with God's life. Mark then recounts the first in a series of miraculous healings where we picked up the story this morning in 121. 
The first happens in the synagogue as Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. A man possessed interrupts. But what comes out of his mouth isn't an observation or an objection, but a curious accusation. And not seemingly from the man himself, but from some demonic spirit that is dominating this this man who is destroying him from the inside out. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. It's strange, isn't it? That the first two witnesses to Jesus' true identity come from spiritual powers. The first from the Father of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved Son. And now the second, a testimony from demonic powers. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus is quick to silence the spirit. And then with a word, he heals the man. The spirits are disempowered. The man is delivered. And the people are left wondering, who is this guy? They had never seen anything like it and never would again. And then this bit of understatement, which I love. News about Jesus spread rapidly. You think? The next healing encounter isn't nearly as dramatic or public, but no less instructive, I think. Jesus goes to the home of two of his disciples, Andrew and Simon, who we know better now uh, as Peter. Peter's mother-in-law was feverish. And the disciples, fresh from Jesus' encounter with the demonic forces in the synagogue, told Jesus about her illness. And yet, there was no flair about it in the most simple and lovely way, without fuss or without any fancy incantations that would be typical of the healers, the miracle workers of the day. Jesus simply takes the woman by the hand and helps her up. And she is well. But this leads, as it must, to more news spreading. More people coming, bringing their ill relatives and friends to Jesus. And Jesus heals them. And the text makes a point that not only were they ill from physical uh, concern, but also demonic spirits, like those inhabiting the man at the synagogue. But again, strangely, we are told pointedly, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And then we come to the third of these accounts of healing, the leper. We don't hear much about leprosy in our part of the world. Even though great strides have been made against the disease, it is still a plague in many places. And it is, make no mistake about it, a cruel disease attacking not just the skin, but destroying flesh and bone. It is as if the body undergoes a lengthy, painful, slow rot. It was widespread in the ancient world, and it was virulent, something we ought to be able to sympathize with in this particular moment. To be diagnosed was, in fact, to receive a death sentence not just physically, but socially. 
With leprosy, social distancing was not six feet. The infected one was shunned, driven to the outskirts of town, forced to dress in clothes that conveyed his desperate situation. Torn, dirty, hair had to be kept filthy. A mask was required. And they had to alert anybody who came near with the self-condemning cry of, unclean, unclean. This was a sentence as firm as any handed down by a court of law. And it robbed the inflicted one of name, occupation, family, friends, and the ability to worship together. What does Jesus do? Well, he does the unthinkable. He doesn't simply stand back and pronounce a cure. With an angry rebuke, not of the man, but I think over the grief of our fallen world, he touches this pariah. He violates custom and law and common sense. He plays into the worst suspicions of those who witness the event. And to their amazement, the man was cleansed. But again, here we encounter Jesus' injunction to the man who was healed. Don't tell anybody. Of course, the man can't help himself. Didn't matter what Jesus would say to him. He was just by his very example going to be a witness to something having happened. He's been freed from a death sentence. And did Jesus actually think no one would notice that the word wouldn't spread? Is he that naive? Here we have three encounters with spiritual and physical disease, two extraordinarily dramatic and one relatively commonplace, but private. I actually love the inclusion of this little paragraph about Peter's mother-in-law. Not only could it be a hint of Mark's prime, that Mark's primary source was Peter, which we, we think is very possible, but it also tells us something about Jesus and the kingdom. Even ordinary folk, common folk, can trust that they have a claim on the compassionate heart of God. And it also helps us to realize that every one of us, regardless of our place in the world, are in need of healing. But why this steady theme of silence from Jesus to the demonic powers, to the leper, and we will see it again and again in Mark's gospel. Why this caution? I think it springs from the fact that Jesus knows human beings. He knows that we are drawn to the dramatic, to the extraordinary. And he knows that because we are, we can actually be drawn aside from what's really going on. We can be distracted by distraction. We can lose sight of the deeper thread, the greater significance. And that is surely what's going on here in Jesus' mind. Jesus attempts to dampen down the news of those healing encounters as a reflection of his desire to say to the people, there's more going on here than you know. There's more going on here than meets the eye. In part, Jesus didn't want news of his messianic identity to spread because it would inevitably be misunderstood as a threat to Roman military might. 
claims to messiahship wherever they arose invariably were cast by the Jews in political terms expressed in the hope of throwing out the Roman occupiers. But Jesus was about more than than military conquest. And Jesus also wanted to calm the enthusiasm around his healing power because he did not want to be confused with the many other miracle maxes, the many others in the ancient world who claimed to have, and in some cases, exercised healing powers. Again, there was much more going on than offering relief, even extraordinary relief, from the body's illnesses. There's much more going on. Jesus' healing ministry, as is hinted at in the first lines of our text this morning, it's about authority. And it's not just authority in teaching. It's genuine authority over malign spiritual powers. It's genuine authority over physical maladies. These accounts of healing are meant to serve as expressions of his authority, but also as signs of his identity. They were in service to his mission, but they were not comprehensive. They were in service to his mission, but they did not tell the whole story about his purpose. Here is the one who is sent by God, the Holy One of God, to heal the world, to inaugurate the inbreaking of a new reign, the fresh wind of the reclaiming power of God. His healing, delivery, delivering ministry is a sign of the character of the God who has sent him. One who has, as we sing every Christmas, risen with healing in his wings. So his healing ministry is in fact just a signal of the sort of kingdom that is coming. A signal of the kind of king who will finally be on the throne of the new creation. But the way to that coming kingdom, it lies through the cruelty of the cross. And this no one could understand. No one had the imagination to grasp a Messiah whose path to triumph lay through the apparent defeat of crucifixion. No one, not one, had the imagination for a loving God who refused simply to throw us back on ourselves and tell us to try harder to save ourselves. He instead would take the rebellion and bitterness of a fallen world into himself as Christ was to do on the cross and through resurrection, defeat with finality, the suffering and captivity that would enslave us to our own destruction. And so he said to those he healed, that was his way of saying, this isn't the whole story. Don't get ahead of yourself. Friends, the ways of God are not our ways. He understands that we are creatures and we are right to scratch our heads, 
to express our lack of understanding of the way that he works in the world and in our lives. He is not intimidated by our questions. He's not put off by them. He understands that as children ask questions of incomprehension of their parents, so we ask ask our questions of our loving Heavenly Father because he knows that his ways are not our ways. And in fact, we do prefer success without suffering. We prefer triumph without trial, every one of us. But God knows something that we are not always sure of, that in that way lies only the shallowest of victories. Today, we gather because we are privileged to know a God who has not settled for cheap success, not for a military victory or a political triumph over a foe or even physical healing. All those are temporary. And that is why we reserve our final loyalty and our worship for him and for him alone. Amen.